0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Media Files. I'm Matthew Ricketson from Deakin University. It's now clear that the world's major news media publishers are increasingly unhappy with the big digital platforms Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple. This is one of the findings of a survey of 90 publishers around the world. According to the survey, 72% of the publishers say they hold more negative attitudes about the digital giants than they did three years ago despite, or perhaps because, they are so dependent on them for their financial well-being. The report was produced by INMAR, the International News Media Association. The author of the report is Robert Whitehead, the former editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald. He spoke to myself and co-presenter Andrew Dodd for Media Files about why so many publishers are so unhappy. (laughs) I wanted to start actually with the fact that you've, you know, you for The Report have interviewed or surveyed 90 media companies in a range of countries, 45 media leaders. And one of your key findings seems to be that in the middle of this year, April, May, 44 percent of the people that you interviewed were much more negative about the big tech companies than they had been six months previously. Uh, That really jumped off the page at at myself and Andrew. What, What did you make of that?
1: I think there's a whole range of things coming together at this moment. I think if you look at the trends that started in March last year, when "techlash" became a, a word that had jumped off the pages of the Oxford Dictionary, and uh, the Observer's investigation into what uh, was going on at Cambridge Analytica was uh, was, was really the big bringing together of a whole range of different different uh, streams of thought on this. And I think by the time we got to the end of 2018, those different thoughts were coming together and were starting to have effects on each other. There There is no way that publisher relationships with platforms can have improved in this time. Given the number of privacy breaches, the number of disputes, the number of inquiries, the number of formal investigations and prosecutions underway and still underway, it was inevitable that we would get to a point possibly uh, called peak platform in terms of the the broader societal view of what's going on with platforms, but certainly in terms of how the news media regarded the platforms. they have been such great partners, but unavoidable partners. They are fantastic to work with. They are awful to work with. And it, uh, it, it was going to be that that relationship was going to get worse.
0: Simply because of the things that were happening that you've just outlined or because of the structural elements in, underneath it all?
1: I, I, I think uh, a couple of things. One is uh, revenue continues to trend south, so the, the pressure uh, yeah. continues to mount on news media. Uh, secondly it uh, the, the the rise in the number of regulatory and other inquiries gives permission for this conversation to happen and uh, one, one of the surprising things i found in in doing this research was that that very few publishers in a particular region of the world were aware of what was going on elsewhere and if this report uh, that we've put together does anything it uh, it allows the light to be Sean, on the macro trend that is seeking a, uh, a different deal between publishers and platforms, and maybe this is the right time for that, um, for that uh, deal to be struck.
2: Well, we should clarify, by platforms, you're talking here principally of, about Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, and perhaps there are no surprises to hear that the publishers that you represent are most unhappy with Facebook, 46% of them said they had a poor or very poor relationship with Facebook. And coming in second was Apple with 26% of the publishers saying they have a poor relationship.
1: I think also interesting, Andrew, is the um, the love-hate score, which we, we put into the survey after the initial soundings indicated that um, we needed that category. And uh, when we then put that former survey up to 90, the love-hate score for Google is by far the highest at 42%. We also drilled in a little deeper, and it's not in the final report, but I wanted to see whether recipients of Google journalism grant, the um, what has variously been called the Digital News Initiative or these days the Google News Initiative, grant. They are substantial sums of money, and if people have received those grants, were they more favourable to Google or not? They're not. They're actually more likely to um, score a love-hate finding against Google.
2: We, We should say here that you went off and interviewed 90 major players or publishers around the world, and I was struck by your comment that very few of them wanted to go on the record and many of them said that it was highly dangerous for them, or risky, or they were fearful of being critical of the major platforms because doing so could threaten their businesses.
1: Yes, uh, that was my conclusion rather than uh, their specific
2: comment. You said it was clear, though, from what they'd done. You'd said it was clear.
1: It was clear. Um, and it, re- it remains clear. The phrase unavoidable business partner appears in much work that's been published over the last 12 months and it uh, features in Rob Sim's uh, final report uh, for the ACCC inquiry into the digital platforms. They are unavoidable business partners, and the definition of unavoidable is you've got to keep working with them tomorrow, and coming out and criticising them in a way that a handful of companies, and I, I think we've got six top-tier news media companies that That are making strong public comments against the digital platforms. You've got to know what you're doing to be able to get into that space. And if you are a smaller or a mid-sized publisher, you are more likely to sit back and and wait. I don't think any publishers that we surveyed were aware of how much political lobbying was going on by other publishers. I think that was part of the the siloing of this issue. Uh, and certainly the geographic uh, restrictions uh, that we tried to remove in this report, um, indicate that more people are active than anyone thought. Uh, There is a great sense that local politicians are unable to deal with this in specific countries. In fact, there was a a formal finding that uh, publishers don't, uh, in some cases, bother going to their local... um, Politician, because they don't think they will understand the complexity of this issue. So we only have the likes of Shipstead, the New York Times, uh, News Corporation, and a handful of others, uh, Axel Springer, each highly uh, successful in the digital era, but very, very careful in the way they choose their lobbying efforts. There is, there is no question. I mean, Gannett, which is just going through a, a major change of uh, structure merging with a with another regional company in the United States to perform, uh to form by far the biggest uh, news media publisher. Um, there are no on-the-record comments um, from Ginnett. Uh It is it's clear what their views of uh, the the platforms are, and they are in very close contact with the platforms. And I think um, at some point they'll probably join the join the list of, um, of players that are making public comments. But there is a reluctance to. Attack publicly the platforms when they still rely on them every single
0: day. That seems to be hampering uh, public awareness, if you like, of the issue. In the sense that if you know a kind of a, a background comment made about a about a Google or a Facebook or something is 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 not going to resonate with the general public. And if, as you're saying, one of the things that's come out of your report is that uh, lots and lots of media outlets around the world are ex- having this experience. Isn't that one of the things that needs to happen to kind of build that awareness across the globe? Because, you know, clearly Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple are global companies. And I should add, they also, as you've pointed out in your report, they also are very, very large, uh, sorry, employ large lobbying efforts on their own behalf, like they're among the most well-represented in the the halls of power in Washington and so on?
2: I don't think there's a lot of
1: sympathy for news media owners and publishers. Maybe I'll start with that. Um, You you can see it in a... Because people don't understand the issues and they don't understand the connection between quality journalism and what kind of society we end up living in. Yeah. Therefore, when a company like News Corporation, to to use one from our uh, region in Australia, Make public comments, or they call for Google to be broken up, as as they did in the submission to the Age Inquiry. There's not a lot of public sympathy based on the comments you see on websites that are reporting those uh, those comments.
0: But do you, do you think, Robert, that's to do with the general public not understanding the value of public interest journalism, or is it to do with the fact that most media companies? Um, large and small, engage in other... do other kinds of journalism as well, you know, some of which is just kind of bread and butter stuff and some of which is terrible and some of which is very harmful. Uh, is, is it that? Is that the general public looks at the overall media and says, yes, I can see you've got, you know, Adele Ferguson or, or whoever it might be or or Paul Maley at The Australian or whomever doing good work here and there... And we get that, and we can see an aged royal commission happening by dint of that investigative work and so on. But you're also doing these other things, and and it's is it what I'm asking? Is it the gap between those two, which the news media companies tend not to talk about, uh, that in fact the public is picking up on?
1: Possibly, but a couple of things to unpack there. Um, no one's here to defend uh, poor journalism. Sure, it is also true that journalism is not just about Pulitzer. Prize-winning pieces that are going to shift the dial on reform. It is about recognising that quality journalism is original material first and foremost that no one else is going to publish about topics that people don't want to have published. To you, to start with that, and that cannot be all that journalism is. Otherwise, there wouldn't be news media. There are many nuances of quality journalism. You. Um, you would see in this report that part of the challenge for quality outlets is to describe what quality is and what role they play in society because if it's not understood, then how on earth are regulators going to understand it. Yes. We've seen in this past 12 months, uh, for the first time, formal, large-scale inquiries into the impact of digital platforms on the business of journalism. It's so facto the effect on society if journalism is under threat. There is no question that journalism is under threat. The funding models are under threat. The business model that has given us independent journalism in liberal democracies is uh, continues to be under threat. I think what's changed is that as new models have emerged, the digital platforms seem to be standing in the way of those new models emerging. No one's got a lot of sympathy for a big company that had... An awful lot of power, and I'm talking news companies here. No one is going to be sympathetic towards the decline of their profit. Just not going to happen. Yeah, Uh, these companies had monopolies. I I make the point in the report that these were very, very powerful companies. They were; these were amongst the most powerful companies in any community, and they've been replaced in that uh, power hierarchy by digital platforms that are fit for purpose in the 21st century that are opening up a whole range of new opportunities and people like buying large those new opportunities. Uh, they like having a voice. They may not like everything in social media, but they love the fact that there has been a democratisation of opinions and the news media overall has had a job to do to position what its role now is. There is no question that things like fake news are an enormous opportunity for classic news media companies to actually finally work out how they fit into the ecosystem and stand up and be very strong in describing that to their potential consumers and their existing readers. There is a job to be done explaining what news media companies do, how their funding of journalism affects society and benefit society we've seen it in three inquiries the ken cross inquiry um out of the uk only dealt with the impact of digital disruption on journalism uh it's a big part of the terms of reference for the C inquiry in australia and we've uh, we've now got um house congressional hearings into the u.s journalism conservation and preservation act which is a bipartisan bill uh before, um, uh, congress, which is looking at trying to improve the lot of small to medium sized publishers that are, are closing almost by the week in the United states and when your town as a as a congress person when your town loses its its um, sole source of journalism, you start to sit up and take notice so we've got Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States now focusing on the problems with journalism. it is an issue for society but it's not an issue that many people outside the industry, uh, not even everyone in the industry, understands the the connection between uh, the good that journalism can do and uh, and how we live our lives in um, in liberal democracies.
2: So, but Robert, can I jump in there because I think what your report does that I love is you've laid out a lot of the problems as the publishers see it, and many of those affect the journalism that you've just described. And many of the problems are predictable, ones that we know about, things like the tax regime that these platforms operate under, the way in which the fake news proliferates under them, problems with privacy and so on. But the other thing I really like about your report is that you then systematically go through them and offer solutions one by one. And I want to now, if we could, focus on a few of those solutions and have a look at them, one of which is to provide algorithmic transparency, and I'm challenging you here to explain. It's
0: on everyone's lips, isn't it?
2: Can you explain that in a way that makes sense? What does algorithmic transparency, this thing that we all want, to know how Google does its algorithms, what does that look like?
1: Well, Andrew, can I um, say I'm not certain that it is something that everyone wants.
0: (laughs) Well, clearly some people don't want it, yes. (laughs) Let's define
1: algorithm, or that's the coding that ultimately decides what you're going to see in terms of journalism, whether it's in a Google News feed, a search feed, um, whether it's in Facebook's instant articles or in the, the general uh, Facebook feed, it determines the order that things will be surfaced to consumers. Now, transparency uh, has been on the list of a number of regulators and a number of politicians in the United States. They are from both sides of the aisle. It is interesting that the the main U.S. lobby group for news media does not actually call for transparency at all. It says it's too hard. It says whatever the rules are, they need to be stable. So let's unpack that. We don't know precisely what the rules are, and in particular, as it relates to quality journalism, there are a couple of mantras. One is that original journalism, journalism that is the source of the story in the first place, should be allowed to uh, climb to the top of searches or um, aggregated news feeds. Google very recently, in the last few weeks, has said that they are changing their algorithms to allow that provenance improvement. If a story was the original source, maybe it was the big investigative piece that someone had been working on for three months, that article is going to get a special boost in the algorithm so that it remains searchable for longer.
0: So that's like the Herald Suns uh, lawyer expert uh, work that you've highlighted in your report that and that's an example where it didn't happen isn't it It, it, as in they did the investigative work they all the hard digging and so on and then the their original story kind of got lost in searches very quickly after it was put up.
1: Um, I I love that example for, for one reason it was the best example that we could find across the globe they've been collecting data on what happens to their original stories in search results. In mobile search, it didn't ever make the top screen for searches that day. So anyone else that quickly named who Lawyer X was and jumped on that story basically was getting um, higher results. Why? Because the algorithms up until the last week or two were favouring more recent articles. It didn't matter whether they had done any work on them. There's this other category, which is the, the copycat or journalism. Now, that is where no original thought has gone into it. They haven't rung up two more sources to get a reaction to the original piece. They've done nothing at all other than rewrite. Now, there are entire brands in most markets that exist by rewriting other people's stories. Yes. Um, The the industry plea to the digital platforms is, uh, just don't even put them in the top findings. It is an insult to the people who are funding the original journalism and... I think it's fair to say that not all of the senior executives of the platforms really understood this issue deeply enough.
0: Sorry, which platforms? The news companies or the Google, Facebook people?
1: When I use the word platforms, we're just talking about the global digital platforms, which uh, refuse to call themselves media companies and they're not telco. So Google, Facebook, Apple and Amazon for this purpose. So anyone that plays in the news space. We're not talking about Microsoft News, although they are very interesting, but they are not omnipresent. They do pay for content, by the way. They're in a different category. We're not talking about Netflix because it's not in the news media business, although it has a very different stance on paying for content. Um, So we're just concentrating on those four. So it's interesting that the platforms themselves did not understand the depth of feeling around this phenomenon called journalism. I have no doubt that the uh, the algorithm changes that uh, Google announced uh, a few weeks back are are going to go a long way to addressing um, some of the big news media companies' concerns on this.
2: I don't think the big news companies are going to be happy with the idea, though, uh, of the platforms not elevating the locked content to the top of the searches. Publishers want it, of course, for obvious reasons. But consumers don't. They don't want stuff that's locked at the top of the searches, and the algorithms at the moment currently dissuade those going to the top. So the publishers won't win that one, will they? I think they are in the process of winning that one.
1: I think the uh, as long as the, uh, the headline and the first paragraph um, are shown, if it is an original story on a major topic, it will... Find its way through the new rules towards the top. That's my understanding. Uh, increasingly, most websites—leave uh, the Guardian aside—and public broadcasters. Most websites that indulge in serious investigative reporting are either uh, doing metered models uh, or, increasingly, premium or fully locked uh, pay models. That's the that's the way to pay for journalism in the future as uh, as advertising revenues uh, decline. There's a whole bunch of things that digital platforms are doing, unfortunately, that are getting in the way of subscription journalism actually paying its own way. However, there's, there has been movement at the station with Google, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of prominence those locked articles get. Um, is there consumer annoyance here? I, I, I wonder in the overall scheme of things where that sits, because to fund the investigative journalism you're going to get money from somewhere and these articles are not going to uh, be written if there is not support for them so we we do know as an industry that people are more likely to decide to buy a subscription or to enter their details to register for a particular news media site if the story is important so leave aside the annoyance factor if someone wants it enough they will register they will purchase and in fact, that conversion moment is happening more and more often on really big, important stories. We've got the data to be able to back that up.
2: But I suspect also for some of the audience, they'll just learn the new behavior of skipping past the top five things in the search to find the things that are free. Uh,
1: of course. And that's what happens. And that's part of the gamification of paid gateways. And in fact, uh, with, with all the browser changes going on at the moment, which are in part due to the data breaches, uh, it is easier to get around. Uh, Metered uh, models than it has ever been
2: before. Now, you looked at the French and the New Zealand rules on hate speech, how there are now takedown rules and, in fact, penalties if the platforms don't take down hate speech. But th- that, that's interesting, you're thinking about making that uniform and, and broader in its, in its application, but also applying it to fake news. So where it's now seen that something is fake, uh, uh, the platforms have to take it down immediately or face penalties if they don't.
1: That's a thing already in some countries, and uh, the the use of the Christchurch call protocol, as they've been known, uh, basically demonstrates that you can do this. The Trust Project out of the United States does uh, demonstrate that you can have uh, lots of nuanced inputs to determining what types of stories should be trusted. Uh, You can determine... Uh, before the algorithms have even done their work, uh, much more about the quality of that publisher, of of the quality of that journalist, and they are important inputs into determining how a story will be shown. Uh, The flip side of that, if something gets through that shouldn't get through, um, there are now established global protocols that uh, admittedly are very new around getting it off. And we, we just saw with the terrorism attack in Halle uh, last week in Germany, um, outside the synagogue, that um, there has been a much uh, faster response to removing material. It was not instantaneous, and you know, lots of people are looking at how Twitch let that run as long as it did. But those protocols were put to the test. And there is certainly a workable framework there that could be extended to fake news, that could be extended to the other parts of uh, um, of the publisher's claims that should just allow more, better journalism to get to the top and fewer bits of journalism and copycat uh, pieces to um, to dominate the agenda. Fake news should never be appearing in a search. And the platforms have said, well, it's not our job to actually determine that quality. They've changed their view on that. Well,
0: that's positive. Um... Robert, you've mentioned in in the report the uh, A Triple the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's, you know, large report. Uh, that's that's referenced throughout yours, and that that is presently before government, and there's a lot of you know backwards and forwards about it between the industry and government and others and so on. Um, the government's due to respond in I think by the end of the year what do you have any sense of uh, how they might where they might land up on this issue uh, how it's going to play out in either in a legislative sense or in providing some means to support journalism um, and media companies do you have any sense of that
1: I don't know whether the government has a sense of it at the moment I mean, I'll just pick a couple of key points findings. uh, But first, I want to explain why the Australian Inquiry is so interesting and why uh, so many other regulators around the world are looking at it. The ACCC has a very unique brief. It is not just an antitrust regulator, but it is also the Consumer Protection Regulator, all under one roof. Um, The Digital Platforms Inquiry uh, took that further and actually expanded the terms of reference to specifically pull in journalism and harm done to journalism and its impact on society um, through potentially uh, competition breaches or or, um, unhealthy dominance um, that the digital platforms are exerting in in the Australian market. It also is the the first major inquiry that has reported in this context of the last 18 months. It is not um, recommending that uh, these companies are broken up. Um, It it fits within the modern interpretation of antitrust, uh, which uh, is uh, broadly called the hipster interpretation. You can't use price effects um, when measuring competition and monopoly impact um, in the digital era when so much of the digital product is actually free. So there needs to be other tests. And 100 years ago, it, it was basically scale. Were you able to Uh, As a large company, were you able to exert pressure on your competitors by just being big? And that's where this uh, school of thought comes from. The hipster interpretation uh, has an extreme flank. Uh, We saw Elizabeth Warren on stage in the Democratic-Candidate debate um, on October 15 in the US, again calling for major action against uh, those platforms. That is a fringe view of it. The hipster interpretation is not going to see these companies broken up. The ACCC did not recommend they be broken up. Uh, the movement in Brussels, which is by far the most um, active area for regulators, and, and the clout that they have is, uh, is second to none. Um, the competition um, commissioner out of Brussels is, uh, has not been calling for the breakup of these companies. She, however, has been um, imposing the largest fines in history. She's just been appointed to another um, term of five years and has even tougher powers. We're not expecting these companies to be broken up. We're expecting to have tougher regulation. Okay. How that is interpreted is going to be interesting because the regulators themselves, interestingly, have got together to try to work out a framework for responses across jurisdictions. There is no law preventing regulators from (laughs) colluding, which I find amusing. So it is a a global industry. We need global frameworks. We do not have a global framework for privacy. Uh, The OECD and the G20 have just released a pretty comprehensive framework for global taxation of these companies. That one's um, potentially dealt with. How are you going to deal with global oversight when it comes to platforms uh, dealing with their own competitors, in the case of Apple and Spotify or Amazon and its own uh, shopping clients? How are we going to deal with uh, a, a global response to search and aggregated news services on journalism? They're really tough ones. I don't think they're going to be near the top of the list. There are some specific recommendations out of the Australian Inquiry that are uh, pretty straightforward, and you, you can put your money on the fact that the government will launch a small publisher, small journalism funding scheme of some description. There is one already in place, which uh, uh, Nick Denethon, uh came up with as part of a compromise.
0: Uh, yeah. That uh, the ACC... it hasn't been a blazing success. Uh, well, it's, uh, it,
1: it's interesting. The uh, second part of that funding round has not been announced. The ACCC has recommended that uh, it uh, be replaced by a new grant system yes. but the, the rules have, have been changing as that uh, as that grant has gone in the in Canada in France um also in the United Kingdom for these kind of grants um there's no clear-cut way of this working I'm I'm a free market guy I think it's appalling that uh, the industry's got to the point where um we want government handouts to fund journalism that potentially might be exposing the politicians that are funding the handouts, There's something wrong about that, and how that is dealt with is a really sensitive political issue. Not all publishers around the world want handouts. They want some level playing fields. Uh, they want some laws changed to be able to improve the monetization of their core businesses. By all means, keep funding public broadcasters, but um, coming up with a system that potentially is open for abuse by uh, the politicians is not something that you would want to put your money on. The interesting conversations are the ones with former digital platform executives who are now out of their West Coast bunkers and are able to talk about um, what they did for a living. There is great awareness of the negative impact on journalism and how important journalism is. We've got the three CEOs of, of, of Facebook, of Apple, of... Google, all saying very specifically that journalism is incredibly important to society and we need to protect it. Journalism is actually the common theme that has emerged. It's not really about um, uh, for news publishers. It's not about the privacy debate. Uh, that It is not about uh, the fake news debate. It's about what can be done to improve the monetization of digital
2: journalism? In part, what you're doing in this report is it's a bit of a call to action. You're giving the publishers around the world a few tools with which to lobby for some action and bring about some change. Do you think they'll take up the cudgels? Do you think they'll take this issue up more effectively as a result of this report?
1: Well, firstly, I was commissioned by the International News Media Association. It is explicitly not a lobbying Outfit. Um, it receives funding from Google and Facebook, among others, um, which is declared. It is uh, the report is designed to pull together everything that's happening on this incredibly important topic to bring it to people's attention in a way that highlights that this is approaching a tipping point. Uh, to to take it into a lobbying exercise is um, it's not the purpose of this report. There are national and regional lobby groups. Uh, very few of them are aware of what's been happening on the on the global front. So pulling it together so that companies can put together more meaningful uh, strategies on this is, has been the uh, the brief. Uh, specifically, how to help them decode their relationship. Every publisher has a different relationship with Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, and it is there is no one relationship. There is no industry relationship with the Google. There is no industry relationship with an Apple. Uh, we have for the first time put together the checklist. This is what publishers generally want Apple to do: stop stop charging the uh, the platform tax. Give us the data when someone subscribes um, on an Apple device. Um, do this, do that in relation to each of the the, uh, the platforms. That list has never been put together before. Publishers can do with it what they want. Why did I want to get involved? There is something really, really important about exercising more brains on coming up with the new business model for journalism. And the more people who can focus on that part of this equation, I have no doubt that there are willing people inside the digital platforms who are also trying to genuinely come up with better ways to monetise the efforts of news media companies because it's only through those better efforts that journalism can be paid for.
0: That's a really good note to end on, Robert. Thank you very much for your time. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Robert Whitehead, the former editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald and author of the report for Inmar, How to Decode the Publisher-Platform Relationship. Recording today by Gavin Neighbour and production by Andy Hazel. I'm Matthew Rickardson. See you next time for Media Files.